Mike Tatey never planned on becoming an Olympian. Never mind becoming one of the most dominant athletes and coaches U.S. rowing has ever seen. His story, in many ways, exemplifies an American dream. From humble beginnings in the city of Philadelphia, Mike took up rowing, a then unknown sport to him, through a friend's suggestion. It turned out that Mike had a real knack for rowing, and through consistent hard work and gradual improvement, he eventually found himself competing at national and international stages. Mike never had visions of grandeur, he simply wanted to get better. That simple philosophy took him to the pinnacle of success in a sport well known for being one of the most grueling to excel in. For nearly four decades, Mike led U.S. rowing and brought that community great success and great pride. Yet what's most important to him is not what he has achieved. It's about the experience of being part of a team and helping that team build strength and character and ultimately win. We hope you enjoy the show. Mike, it's a true delight and honor to chat with you today. As you know, I'm friends with Paul, your brother, and even before that had heard a lot about you. You're a legend in the rowing community. I'd like to start off in an actually unique place because I've got to know Paul through the years. You have such an incredible family. It seems like your family's very big and everyone's very tight. It's a close-knit community. Tell us how you were able to develop such a great family culture. Well, I mean, I think it starts with the parents, right? I mean, obviously. And I think, look, I think that growing up, it was sort of, it was one of these things where everyone sort of pitched in. And that came from from a very young age. (laughs) I used to always say that the two words that I didn't know, because I didn't go to kindergarten or nursery school or any of that stuff. We went right to first grade. And the two words I didn't know until I got to school were mine, because there was nothing in our house that was mine, and allowance. (laughs) I didn't know what that was because, you know, they'd have like the candy lady come around at the school and these kids would have this money to buy candy or pretzels or whatever it was. And I go, where did I get the money? Oh, that's my allowance. I said, what do you you get allowance? What what does that mean? Well, you know, I take (laughs) out the trash. I do the dishes. I'm there. Well, I, I do all that. Like, we don't... So everyone sort of pitched in. And I think that um, not only that, I think it came from from our parents' families. They came from a close family. And it was, you know, our parents were very loving and caring. Sometimes it was tough love, but we always were keenly aware that they really cared for us. And and consequently, we wound up caring for each other. And uh, you know, my sisters and my brothers are all characters. So, you know, it's pretty entertaining as well. Well, it's definitely a unique thing to experience, especially I came from a a much smaller family. And several years ago, I I got to know Paul. And every time we'd see each other, there would be a family member in town that was not only a social gathering, but it seems like he was also trying to help them. Um, And, you know, there's a saying, charity begins at home. But there's also a tremendous amount of charity that both you and your brother are engaged in. I mean, you can imagine in a big family, there's always something going on. But whenever there's a problem or it's something needs to get taken care of, I mean, they mobilize. You know, if someone's sick, everyone mobilizes, right? Like, okay, what are we doing? Or and I know like personally, listen, I've had a lot of ups and downs as a coach. And and you know, what I remember most is the failures. 
and the times that were difficult. And whenever there's a time, like, I don't go a second without hearing from my sisters and my brothers, right? And my parents, you know, like they were, everyone's just, they help and everyone's helpful. And that just is, again, it was ingrained in us. Look, I had, I tell everyone I had 16 years of Catholic school, right? I'm not religious, but it does rub off on you. And I think that my mom, she lived it. Like she lived it. She lived it. And I remember my dad, you know, when you're a little kid, he would say, you know, your sisters are the nicest and they're the most beautiful and they're the most you know, like in you there. No, they're not. But you know what he was trying to, the message he's trying to get across. Like, again, it, charity begins at home and everybody, it's always been that way. And to this day, to this day, it's that way. So I know that like, I always felt like, you know, my mom used to tell me, I said, mom, you know, 10 kids. And she'd say, yeah, because to take care of you. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I always felt that. I always felt like no matter what went wrong or if I needed something, I know that no matter how bad it gets, I have like this army of family that's going to help. You know, they're going to help and they're going to, you know, we'll get over it. We'll get through it. And that, that be to rely on that or to have that confidence that things will get resolved or made better is comforting. One would think, I guess, from from my viewpoint, that some of that background would help later on in life in becoming an athlete and a coach and a team member, most of all. And truly, your career is astounding from, I think it spans nearly four decades in a major role, whether as an athlete or or as a coach in the rowing community. So it would be great to hear your thoughts on kind of how you were able to just maintain that community and being a leader in the community? Well, you know, I never, t- you know, I think I told you that when I, you know, the words that I hear now today is that I've run the opposite direction or the two words, high performance. And then the other one is leadership. It's just like, you just, it's either ingrained in you or it's not. And I, it's interesting you mentioned the family, but I was always into the team. And I remember like even in elementary school, when you're on a school football team, like I was into the, into the huddle, into the like, yeah, let's do it for the team or being part of the team. And, and maybe that just comes from our background coming from a big family. And I always wanted, but didn't always achieve this, but all the teams that I was on or that I tried to coach, I tried to have that. You have these relationships with people and you want it to be this, this team effort, like the whole's greater than the sum of its parts. And I can think of a lot of the crews that I coached that won world championships or national championships, or even the crews that I was in that won the world championships. We weren't the best guys, but it was the best team. You can't ignore that. And I think that you don't see a lot of that today anymore. Like, for example, when I talk to friends of mine, like they're all into this, hey, who's on your fantasy team? I just could never get into it. I go, like, I'm from Philly. I cheer for the Eagles, you know, win or lose. Like, that's, that's who I'm with. That's my team, you know? But like, this fa- like, it's all the individual stuff, right? And Instagram and Snapchat and like, okay, I can see the benefits of it, but I can also see where you don't see this doing something for the common good, right? And you just don't see that. And I think, it, you, I mean, look, you see what, you see what our government or, you know, what's happening. Like, you just... Everyone's sort of out for themselves now. And uh, that doesn't appeal to me at all. 
I think it becomes much more difficult to have this family atmosphere with the national team than it did when I coached in college, you know, like when I coached at Temple University or Princeton University or even at Cal, like we had that. But, you know, you have that rah-rah spirit with, you know, your university. With the national team, it's a little more difficult because most of the guys that you come in contact with aren't going to make it. And that's the most difficult thing as a coach, right? To say, look someone in the eye and say, look, okay, you know, we've made another decision and you're not going to be on the team. You don't know if they're going to say thanks for the opportunity or punch you in the mouth or <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. You got to kind of sit there and take it. But, but I've always been, I feel like I've always tried to, and again, failed sometimes, but always tried to have this sort of team type family type atmosphere. Because if you're able to sort of get along or at least have mutual respect, I think that that goes a long way in whether you're going to have success. Like you have, I remember I had to, um, I had to speak once at, uh, at Goldman Sachs, right? And I was speaking to the tech workers. And I don't remember the exact statistics, but when they called me and they, they brought me in, they told me that, like, these are the salaried workers. But when this system goes down, we lose, I don't know, so many millions a minute, right? <laughs> right. So these people really hold it together. And we wanted, we wanted to sort of speak to sort of the value of them being part of the team because they don't always feel like they're part of it, you know? And that's like, I've always sort of, you know, when I coached in college, you have your first boat and your second boat and your third boat. And you sort of, you want to make sure that everyone feels like even the kids that are on the sidelines, that they're contributing or they played a role in the success of the team. And I can tell you that, and again, it all goes back to the family. Like it all goes back to the family. Like there's absolutely no way I could have made it as an athlete if I didn't have my family. I really feel like that was, yeah, I had great coaches and I had great teammates, but really it's knowing that, that you have these people that care deeply about you and they, they have your back no matter what, no matter what, it's comforting and it goes a long way. So Now switching gears and it's still team related, but when you're selecting members for the team. And I think I saw this in one of your interviews that there's kind of three components to evaluating a, a team member. There's their skill, there's just power, and there's a little bit of psychology uh, right. involved. And you've probably selected team members for countless teams. Tell us a little bit of, about that, because I think it relays into the business world, or, or in fact, any team, selecting members to a team, what was kind of the filter you used? Well, I, again, like our sport, it's an endurance sport, and there's a physiological component, a technical component, and a psychological component. And, you know, they say, well, what's the most important? I always give the example. I say, you know, I had this guy that I coached at Temple University, and he he finished third in the Ironman. And I said, you know, it's cycling and it's running. And it's swimming, like of those three, what's the most important? He goes, well, in order to finish in the top five, you have to be a really good cyclist, a really good runner, <laughs> you know, and a really good swimmer. So right. it's the same thing. Like you cannot have to win on the Olympic level, to win on the world international level on the stage. Like you have to have all those bases covered. We have some guys that have tremendous physiology and they're they're highly skilled but they're not racers or they don't crave like the people that generally crave the competition generally do the best or have no fear 
And you see that in every sport. And I think you see that in, in the business world, you know, people that they know, look, I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going for it. Like, you know, listen, this is where I'm going. You know, if you get in my way, I'm going to run you over. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that type of attitude is kind of what you need. And obviously, you know, you got to do your X's and O's. But I think that you try to evaluate all three of those areas and you say, okay. And then I try to compare, like once in selection, I try to compare to some of the really good crews that I had and say, okay, where would this person fit in our 2004 Olympic champion boat? Or where would they fit in our 1998 gold medal eight? Like, would they make that boat? Maybe they're the best guys we have now, but then how would they fare compared to these, to the, to the top people? And I think the other thing is you have to be, as a coach, you have to be honest with these people, which today, <laughs> you know, today's athletes a lot different. I mean, when I was younger, coaches were like deity, you know, and you just like, they said something it was like coming from the burning bush. Okay. And I always say, like, when people ask me as an athlete, I said, well, look, I, being a solid C minus student kind of helped me. I, I just did what my parents said and I did what the coach said. I just figured they knew more. And you just, if I was, you know, a wide receiver and the football coach wanted to move me to center, I don't really want to play center, but I just did what he said. Figured, mm -hmm. well, they, they're putting me there for a reason. And I sort of had this blind faith where today you almost have to sugarcoat it. I can't say, look, this year probably isn't your year, but keep training. And like, I think kids today, it's like they want it. They want this immediacy, you know, it's because that's what we're used to, mm -hmm. you know, boom, you know, they got their phone and they can call Siri, <laughs> you know, I mean, an immediate answer. Right. And I get that now. So, what, hey, I want to I want to win a gold medal at the Olympics. What do I have to do? Well, I said, well, you know, I won my Olympic medal my 11th year in the sport. My wife won her gold medal at the Olympics, her 11th year in the sport. And that's called normal. You know, well, I don't have 11 years. I want to do it like in six months. And you know, well, okay, it's not going to happen in six months. But you can't say that today. <laughs> right? And, I, and that's sort of where guys like me are a little bit of a dinosaur, you know, and I have to, have to kind of figure out how to get the best out of this individual. And if he didn't make it, it's still your inventory. It's still someone that you will be good down the road. So you want to retain them. I mean, it's, it's trying to get people that have ability and talent and potential and retaining them as long as possible. That's what our game is. And I think it's the same thing in the business world. It's like you're getting your JP Morgan's going to get their number one draft pick out of Harvard Business School or something. I don't know. And, but they're maybe not there yet. <laughs> But five years down the line, if they stick to it, they're going to be, uh, I don't know, they're going to be your, your LeBron, right? <laughs> you know? Right. And that's the other thing. It's like, like my son, he's 14. He thinks he's going to the NFL because he scores his touchdown in a JV football game, you know? And so it's like, okay, John, that's great to dream that, but that's, there's a lot of work to be done between 14 and the NFL. Yeah. And, you know, you can't cut corners, so. You said something interesting when we were chatting several weeks ago in that when you were starting out in the sport, you just wanted to get better and kind of looking back and seeing kind of all the kind of championships and medals you won throughout your career, couldn't help but think, did you ever have that grand vision of what you would accomplish? No, you know, I can say in rowing, 
when I went down to Boathouse Row in Philadelphia, I mean, my best friend in high school, his father was in the 1932 Olympics and they were determined that I, you know, they're going to, I was a pretty good athlete and they're going to teach me how to row. And it was this whole part of Philadelphia that I didn't even know existed. And when I got down there, there was all these characters down there, you know, and it was like, I just liked being down there and they had all these stories and I liked it. And I just liked being there. I liked the people. I liked the training. And, you know, again, like, like in a way to take the pressure off is what I, what you just said is I just felt like, I'm just trying to get better. I'd like to be a little bit better. And, you know, and you just listen to what the coach says, do this drill or do this training program. And, and I could feel myself getting a little bit better. And I didn't have this goal to go to the Olympics or win an Olympic medal or win a world championships. I just, I enjoyed it and I liked it and I was just trying to improve. And I, you feel like instead of saying, I have to make the team, like I felt like making this goal. So I'm sort of the opposite. I didn't have the long range goal. Mm-hmm. I just had like, okay, tomorrow I want to be a little bit, each day I got in the boat, I got a little bit better initially. It's like anything. If you start lifting weights, if you lift weights every day, or if you play golf every day and you've never played, you'll get a little bit better each day and then you'll plateau, right? So for me, I was just getting better all the time. And then as I was, I was getting better, then I was getting moved in boats with better people, right? And then that sort of accelerates the process. And then the next thing you know, you know, I had never been to an airport, let alone an airplane. And the first time I was ever at an airport was when I was going to the world championships. So it's like, but then that made it like, so I like rowing to me was never hard. I'm not saying there weren't some hard practices, but I liked the practice. You know, I liked the traveling. I liked, you know, I got, I was from West Philadelphia and I got to see the world, you know, my dad didn't finish high school and I was, you know, going to go to college and like, it just opened all these doors to me and I liked it. And, um, Then when I got to the point where I wasn't, I got better, 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 won some medals, and then I got a little worse. And, you know, as I got older and then I got cut, (laughs) you know, people ask me, when did you retire? I said, I never retired. I, I got cut, (laughs) you know, I didn't, that was it. You get better and then, you know, you hang on for a while and then you get worse and then you're done. (laughs) And then I coached because that was the next closest thing. Again, I liked, I liked being down the river on Boathouse Row and, who knows? Probably half the stories that those guys were telling weren't true, but I believe them all and disliked it. So, and then, you know, just went from there. Well, the, the sport I know has grown tremendously over the past decades. And so you've probably seen it change a whole lot. And now it's a major sport across many colleges, a lot of rowers out there. And I happen to know of some folks that are in college that are rowing. What's like one or two pieces of advice? that you could impart. I think the main thing is, is sticking to it. Like anything, you know, initially, especially if you're a pretty decent athlete, you know, you're learning a new sport, right? So it's frustrating at the beginning. Like even things for me, that one of the hardest things for me was the terminology, you know, like port, starboard, stern, bow. I was never around boats, you know, from West Philly. I didn't, you know, I didn't. So, so that's one thing. It's just, Sticking with it because you will get better. And it's one of those sports where hard work, not saying hard work doesn't pay off everywhere, but hard work, you will get way more benefit in a sport like rowing than another sport because it's an endurance sport. 
right? And I mean, I have guys that have won medals that aren't super athletes, but they're just driven. You know, they're just driven where I can be driven as a basketball player. You know, I played basketball in college and spend most of my time on the bench. You know, I mean, I worked hard and, but I wasn't as good as the other guys. Right. And in, but in rowing, you can go a long, long, long way just by training really hard. So that's, they're the two things I would say, stay with it because it will get better. And then like anything, you know, when your skill gets better and then train really hard and, you know, you'll be in a top boat and you're probably going to be victorious, right? Or have a, have a really good experience. Right. Uh, one thing is I was watching, there's a great video talking about some of the teams you've worked with and some of those clips with the, the coxswain who's, you know, kind of guiding or coaching kind of the team along the way. It's tremendously powerful, just kind of the voice and kind of what they're saying. Can you, and I don't know anything about rowing. Can you tell us a little about the importance of that role? Oh, that's, it's severely important because again, the coxswain is sort of like a jockey, right? I mean, you have to know when you're going to have a whip and you kind of, kind of know when to use it, right? So you have to give them, you have to be able to multitask because you're in this race, especially on the top level, these races are, they're within hundreds of seconds sometimes, right? And, you know, you have this craft, like this eight that's going 30 miles an hour and you have to be able to steer it right? Which is hard. So there is a skill level for the steering and you have to be able to give them good information. So like they'll have a, they'll have a little, what they call a Cox box, but it's, it basically gives you the speed. It gives you the running time. It gives you the stroke rate. So he's giving them stroke rate. He's telling them where they are in the race and every crew has a race plan and they have to execute that plan. Like we're going to make, we're going to go up two beats at this point, or we're going to go we're going to take a big move here at 600 meters or, and then they have to have the confidence of the athletes in the boat. And that's a big thing. It's like, you're saying something to your child, you're giving them advice. They have to believe you or, or if they have to have confidence in what you're saying. And I think that, that in like a lot of coxswains, it is a gift. Like what the better ones really do stand out, but they have a lot to do. They have a lot to do. And, you know, they, Again, they safety, number one, right? Like during practice, like, look, there's sometimes you're on bodies of water that have debris or there's other boats there. Or there's other boat traffic. You have to be on the ball. Like you really have to pay attention. You have to be able to steer. You have to make technical calls. You know, you have to be able to watch all these blades and all the guys in the boat and tell them what they're doing right and wrong, but doing it in a, in a way in which you're going to get a response. Like I tell Cox, as I said, if you say something, and you don't get a response, then you know you have to eliminate that from your repertoire, right? It's same with me as a coach. You know, you generally, the better ones don't have to say as much, but the things that they say are significant. So, yeah, so there's a lot for them to do in the race. And they have to really be, again, you have to be able to multitask, like see the other boat, like on either side, where you are, is the other boat moving? What's your stroke rate? Are you, you know, if you want to row 36 strokes a minute and you're at 40 strokes a minute, you have to make an adjustment. They have to respond to that call. So there's, there's a lot to do. And I think that uh, we've been blessed with some really good ones. 
Well, we're we're coming up on time, and I want to be respectful of of your time. You've been generous by by spending a little bit with us. I'd like to end on one question: in that, is there someone, or even a few people, a couple people, that you think helped shape the way you were able to, you know, evolve your career and develop as a coach? I mean, I think look, as we hit the family part, right? <laughs> so we we know that, but. Coaches, I mean, you know, Chris Korzenowski was, I don't think there's a coach on earth or in history that could force technical change like Chris could. And I would say that I learned the most from him, but I learned from every coach I had. George Matson was my first coach, Chuck Crawford in high school, you know, Harry Parker, you know, the coaches at Vesper, Jim Glavin, and I can go on and on and on. But also, when I first started coaching at Temple University, with Gavin White. And man, he was fun, you know, and I just learned, I learned more about life from Gavin than I learned about X's and O's from coaching. And then, you know, I coached under Curtis Jordan at Princeton when he was, he was my boss. And I was assistant to Mike Sprackman, who was the national team coach. And Lori Daphne, the head women's coach at Princeton is one of my closest friends. And I think she's the best that there is. So Yeah. I mean, I've been influenced by a lot and we all, you know, we all take from each other. There's no, you know, as I say in rowing, there's many roads to Rome. There isn't just one way. Then you sort of learn and try to evolve along the way. Well, excellent. I think that's a great note to end on. So thank you again, Mike, for taking the time. It's uh, a delight again. and, And I know our audience will find this very insightful. Great. Thanks, RJ. Thanks a lot.